Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we bow in your presence and we ask that the Holy Spirit of God would open the Word of God to all the people of God. Speak, Lord, for your servants seek to hear. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So what are we going to do with the woman who has no name and no lines? What are we going to do with the woman who has no name and no lines? Doesn't sound like a prescription for a successful play to me. When I was in secondary school, our acting instructor was a guy named Peter Candler, who's a long story for another time. He used to work with Summer, Summer Stock and New England. He was a phenomenal drama instu- instructor, and he used to beat various things about acting into us. One of his most famous sayings at the school was, there are no small parts, only small actors. <laughs> Two of my friends who were one class ahead of me at school were in South Pacific, and their uh, job as part of the play was on three occasions to walk across the stage carrying a hammock. That was their scene, no lines. And so they worked on this all year, and they worked on this thing where as they went across the stage, they both went up in the air, and they did this thing with their legs back and forth that was perfectly synchronized, like synchronized swimmers. When they did the end of the production recognition of the cast, they got a standing ovation. (laughs) All they did was walk across the stage. It's not the... uh, The inadvertent parts, it's how you play the inadvertent parts, the smaller parts, the lesser parts, the unnoticed parts. And this morning we have a woman who is often unnoticed and only in Luke, just like the prodigal son and the lost coin and the lost son. So let's see what we make of her. Please turn, it'd be so kind, and I'd like to have it on the screen if I could. We're in Luke 7, 36 to 50. And what I want to do this morning is walk through the story in some detail first and then make... Uh, two observations about it. We'll see how we do. So first of all, I want to walk through the story. One piece of historical background, which is crucial for us as we begin, just so that you can visualize what we're talking about. So back in Jesus' day, if you had a significant amount of resources, you had a significant house, and the, the people who had significant houses often had houses which were big enough for a courtyard, and the courtyard would be in the middle of the house. It was in the shape of a square, and it was an open square. And when you entertained, it was not simply an event for you and your guests. It was an event for the community. That's part of the reason it was an open square. And sometimes if you're really well-to-do, you had somebody at the door. But the point is that if you had a guest, you know, a, a VIP guest, which often people of this stature would do, part of the power of it was not simply that you had this guest and all of your invited guests got to hear the guest, but people from the town could come and they could come and and stand and hang out in the back. And the way that this is set up is there's actually couches and they're all pointed toward the middle, and on the, in the middle is a table. So all the people who are invited guests, you know, the, the Episcopalians, the ones with the, 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 ones with the properly uh, fixed name tags with gold writing, they, they all have their feet behind them, and they're laying on the couch, and the food is in front of them. So you got the picture? So Jesus is in this key place right next to the host, 
And Simon has been working on this. We'll get to this in a second for a long time. He's very excited. He's got this really significant rabbi guest. He's wanted to have him from a long time. But that explains how the woman gets in. Otherwise, the story's not going to make sense. All right, now to the text, and let's walk through this. Now, this is a classic Anglican story. What he's doing is having the preacher over for dinner, right? This is something that Anglicans do. And he's a good Anglican, so everything has to be done how? Decently and in order, right? So everybody's got their place at the table, everybody's got their name tag, and so on and so forth. And his anticipation for this has been high. When you look at the text and it says, asked him in verse 36 at the beginning, that word asked is a continuous imperfect tense. It means that Simon's actually been trying to get Jesus over to the house for a while. He's fascinated by this rabbi. He respects this rabbi. He thinks he's an interesting guy. He's got some pull in the community. So this is a big deal. Everything must be done correctly in Anglican fashion, decently and in order at the beginning. And then a woman comes from the wrong side of the tracks, crashes the party, and does just about everything wrong that you could possibly do to mess the party up. She does not have an invitation. She violates every protocol. And not only that, she's come there with an alabaster jar of ointment, which is an incredibly expensive jar. And she's described, did you see it in your text, as a sinner. That means her profession is to sin. She's labeled a sinner. This is the Hester Prynne, for those of you who are literature people. She's got a scarlet A when she walks into the house. Probably a professional prostitute or somebody like that, well-known with a reputation of being a habitual sinner who probably makes her livelihood from sin. And she comes in and she's got an alabaster jar which was so valuable in Jesus' day that some people actually bought them as investments. And her goal is very simple. She wants to take this expensive ointment and to say thank you to Jesus and to anoint his head. And it all goes cattywampus and wrong. Look at your text. Verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city who is a sinner, when she learned he was there, She brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and she went to his head. Nope. She stood behind him, and she was so overcome with emotion that she couldn't do anything other than to stand. Now, brothers and sisters, we're already way inside the text, and you've got to use your imagination. You've got to think about what this means. There are moments in our lives where things happen to us where words are not enough. It goes beyond words. I'm coming up to my 35th anniversary. I have to be careful because my wife is here. But, but you know what? what no, but, but 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 I mean, what in the world does it mean to say to somebody? Who, I mean, I've now been married more than half of my life. It's finally happened. But I mean, what does it actually mean to say to her uh, that you know she's given birth to our three children and all that she's done? I I cannot possibly put that into words. Maybe I could early on. I can't. It's beyond my capacity to, to state fully what she means to me and, and how much um, I love her. It's impossible for me to put that into words. This is what she's feeling. This guy has changed the world. This guy has changed her life. This guy has turned her life upside down. So she's not saying anything. And nobody's paying her any mind. 
And then she starts to cry, which messes it up even further because she's so overcome with emotion about how much Jesus has done and how much he loves her that she starts to cry. And she's behind him, not in front of him. And she's got the alabaster jar and it's all going wrong. And so she starts to wet his feet with her tears. And then it goes even worse wrong because she cries to such an extent that, it, that there's a flood of tears. And now his feet are getting all wet and she's feeling really bad. So she, she kneels down and with her hair, she starts cleaning up her tears on his feet and then because she's down there and because it's all gone wrong she simply can't do anything other than take the ointment and at least get it on him somehow so she puts it on his feet which is not where it belongs and can we just pause and remind ourselves for the umpteenth time that back in Jesus' day the foot was the dirtiest part of the body. So that when John the Baptist says, the, the thong of Jesus' sandals, I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie, he's saying the dirtiest part of Jesus is more valuable than the most valuable part of me. It, they're incredibly dirty, horrible part of the body. And there she is with this really expensive anointment, ointment, which is worth uh, an investment for a very well-to-do person. She couldn't possibly have had the money early on in her life to afford it. She probably sp- spent most of what she had just to get it. She's putting it on his feet. Oh, by the way, all the other guests are still at the at the party. They're all still talking, right? This is all going on. And Simon is what? This is a disaster. This is horrifying. This is terrible. His party's all messed up. In every conceivable sense. Not one word exchanged so far. Look at all those verbs. Brought an alabaster flask of of ointment, verse 37. Stood behind him, weeping. Began to weep, wet his feet with her tears. Then wiped them with her hair of her head. Then kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Not a word from anybody at the party. And the whole time Simon's thinking, this is just, this is terrible. I worked for months to get this guy over to the house. I had these embroidered invitations, and I had these special placemats, and everything's supposed to be done decently and in order, and this is terrible. What is wrong with this guy? But he respects Jesus, and so we enter. It's a great story, this. We enter into a conversation he's having with himself. By the way, newsflash. I've said this many times, I'm going to keep saying it to you. God knows us better than we know ourselves. And this is a great passage about anthropology. You do know this about yourself, right? All of us every day have conversations with ourselves all during the day. You do know this, right? So you actually get to find out what Simon's thinking. And what he's thinking is, this is a disaster. But more than that, he's sitting in judgment, not simply of her and of the whole party. It's gone wrong. She's a sinner. She's wrong. But he's upset at him because he thought he might be a prophet. He's certainly a person of spiritual significance. Remember, this is in a a culture where hospitality is the number one value. So to have somebody over for a meal is a sign of utmost respect and regard. He says, "If, if this guy really were a prophet, he knew what kind of person this was, he wouldn't be doing this. He wouldn't be accepting this. And then his party and his day, which were already going way off the tracks, go even farther off the tracks. And Jesus enters into the conversation he has with himself. There's the God who knows you better than you know yourself. Jesus knows the scene so well. He knows her. He knows what she's doing. He knows why she's doing it. But he also knows Simon and the conversation he's having with himself. And he says, Simon, I have a question for you. There's two guys. One owes $5 million. The other owes $50,000. And they both get completely forgiven for their debt. Question, who do you think is happier? Simon, you know. "Mm." 
I suppose, verse 43, you see where I am, I suppose, very reluctant he, the one for whom he canceled the debt. And Jesus says, good answer. You got it. You get 100 on the test. You see this woman? And he turns the whole scene upside down. He commends the woman as a heroine and the kingdom of God to Simon. Do you see her, he said. She did what she did because she knew how completely she had made a mess of her life and how profoundly God had forgiven her. As a result, she loved much and she wanted to find a way to say it no matter what. So Simon's party is turned upside down. Simon's world is turned upside down. Simon's theology is turned upside down. And then it all goes completely haywire when the woman who has no lines, who's messed up everything, is not simply at the party or somebody needs to pay attention to the party. She's the heroine of the story. The woman has the real power that changes the world, the power of the Holy Spirit, which enables her to be loved by God in Christ and then to seek no matter what to express it to others. What a story. By the way, just in passing, I look forward to meeting her in heaven one day. I will very much enjoy finding out her name, which we still do not know. Great story. Now, what are we going to do with all this? How are we going to think about it as Christians in this series we call His Story? Well, let me go in two directions for your thoughts this morning. First of all, I want you to think about the folly of Simon for a second. Simon stands as the great warning in the New Testament, and it's a scary warning at that. J.C. Ryle, in his wonderful book, Expository Thoughts on the Gospel, says this, You can show great outward respect for Christ and yet be unconverted. Simon the Pharisee before us is a case in point. He showed our Lord much more respect than many did. He even desired to eat with him. Yet all this time he was profoundly ignorant of the nature of Christ's gospel. His proud heart secretly revolted at the sight of a poor contrite sinner being allowed to wash our Lord's feet. Boom. Which means what? It means that Judas is in the New Testament for a reason. His qualifications were excellent, right? We all know this, right? Looks like a disciple, talks like a disciple, dresses like a disciple, must be a disciple. Three years with Jesus, outstanding. Would have made most Episcopal churches vestries. Certainly would have made uh, the vestry at a church I worked at. Nope. Because you can, you can be in a church, you can use religious language, you can have great respect for Jesus, you can be intrigued by Jesus, you can even think Jesus is a prophet, you can want to dine with Jesus. All those things can be true, and yet you're still not a Christian. As we've said over and over again, and we will continue to say from this pulpit, a Christian is someone who has been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. A Christian is someone who knows that they can't get into heaven on their own, which is exactly where Simon is. There are religious people and there are irreligious people. There are saints and there are sinners. And if you're a good person and you do the right things, you will get into heaven. One recent American poll had over 80% of the country believing that. If you're a good person and you do the right thing, you get into heaven. And obviously Simon fits the bill. In fact, he's not just a good person, he's a great person because he's super spiritual and he had the right person over for dinner at the right time with the right invitations and the right engraving and the whole right thing. 
It's all external. It's all about His righteousness. It's all about His effort. It's all about what He can do. That's not the gospel. It'll never work. It never has. One example from church history, if I may. One of the great documents we have that has come down to us is from 1740, in the midst of the Great Awakening, one of my favorite periods of American church history. The great preacher George Whitfield is running around the country. He's a wonderful story for another time. He actually was at one point at St. Philip's. It's true. They kicked him out of the pulpit of St. Philip's. He was charged with three things. Two of them were praying in public and enthusiasm. So fantastic a preacher was he that he could preach to 50,000 people with no microphone. Benjamin Franklin once went to hear him in Philadelphia and said, no matter what you think of what Mr. Whitfield says, Mr. Whitfield believes what Mr. Whitfield says. (laughs) And this is the story of one farmer by the name of Nathan Cole in 1740 in Middletown, Connecticut, who happened to hear that George Whitfield was giving an address. The whole early part of the story, which is hilarious, is he hears that it spontaneously gets to him. He's actually in his field, goes to get his wife, and he has to go 12 miles with his wife on his horse just to get there. They barely make it in time. And this is his description of what happened. Listen to this. This is a farmer in 1740 in Middletown, Connecticut. He looked as if he was clothed with authority from the great God, and a sweet, solemn solemnity sat upon his brow. And my hearing him preach gave me a heart wound. By God's blessings, my old foundation was broken up, and I saw that my righteousness would not save me. And on hearing him preach, he gave me a heart wound. By God's blessing, my old foundation was broken up, and I saw that my righteousness would not save me. Boom. That's the other side of where Simon was. Simon was about his righteousness, and he didn't have his old foundation broken up. And if you don't know your need for Christ, you're never going to avail yourself of Christ. And Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and you've got to know you're a sinner in order to be saved from someone who saves sinners. Are we all together so far? So the first question is, and it's a, it's a sobering question. Are you? Are there any Simons in the house? Are there any Simons in your family? By the way, this applies also to your workplace and to your friends and stuff. Just because someone looks like a Christian and sounds like a Christian, don't assume that they're a Christian. Many people in my ministry have come to Christ when I've looked them in the eye and simply asked the question, are you a Christian? And they can't answer the question. Or they say, I'm trying, in which case I know that they haven't got the foggiest idea what a Christian actually is. Don't be afraid to ask that question. We all together so far. So first of all, the folly of Simon. Second of all, the fruitfulness of the woman with no name. I absolutely love her. Jesus speaks the language of the heart, does he not? She has no lines, and she does everything wrong, except she does everything right, because she does it out of love. And everybody who's a parent can relate to this, right? Lots of parents accept weird gifts from kids of various shapes and sizes because they're given in love, no matter how weird. So when I was growing up and I was in my teens, my mom showed me a book of some of the early stuff. And one of the letters she kept was when I was six, great big writing, 
you know, one of the family scrapbooks and says, Dear Mom, I hate you. Love, Kendall. (laughs) There isn't a person here who's a parent or grandparent who can't understand why she had that in the scrapbook. That's exactly what this woman is doing. It's not about the fact that she's doing it in the wrong order, in the wrong place, on the wrong part of the body. That's not it. She's doing it out of love. Now, I want you to see how this works. I want to unpack her in some detail. First of all, I want you to see the basis of what's going on. You're not going to understand this story unless you understand this key fact. When she gets to this party, this meal, this extravaganza that Simon is presenting, she's already saved. She's not there to be saved. She's there in response to being saved. So you can't make sense of her story unless you back up the clock and use your imagination and take something like, for example, uh, Matthew 11, where Jesus says, Come unto me, all ye that travail and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And you put yourself in a particular place in Jesus' ministry where there's a crowd, and she happens to come because she's heard so much, and she's on the outskirts, and he says, Come unto me, all you that are travail and are heavy laden, and, I, and lay, I, I will give you rest. I will take your burden, and my burden for you will be light. And all of a sudden he looks at her, and she looks at him. Now you need to think about that for a second. Just at that point, if you ever read about prostitutes or anybody who works with prostitutes, prostitutes are used, they're not seen, they're not heard. Did you catch what Jesus said in verse 44? It's one of the hearts of the story. Remarkable thing. Verse 44, do you see this woman? Why does he say that? Because he's already seen her. And she's already seen him. She got that there was mercy available. She got that she could give up her hard yoke and give it to him and get an easy yoke. She got that there was mercy and that there was a way out of this horrible life that she constructed to herself. And it had all fallen into place. She'd availed herself of the mercy of God. So the heart of it is forgiveness. Is that not the heart of this story? Look at your text and just make sure you don't miss it, right? Forgiven, verse 47, your sins are forgiven, right? And then the story that Jesus tells, what does it say? Now, which of them was forgiven more, right? Because they both got forgiven. He canceled the debt. That word canceled in verse 42, that this translation translates canceled, is the word forgiven. So three times in the text, verse 42, verse 47, and verse 49, forgive, forgive, forgive. It's about forgiveness. She got that she could be forgiven. Nobody was even paying any attention to her. Nobody was looking at her. Nobody cared anything about her. And she got forgiveness. There's a great story in the book, The Bridge Over the River Kwai, which is appropriate at this point. It's the story of some Scottish prisoners. Some of you may have seen the movie. It's a very good movie. Scottish prisoners in a prison camp in Japan. The Japanese were ruthless. They were brutal. The conditions were thoroughly awful. And in the book, on one particular day, they do a tool check on a semi-random basis to make sure that nothing's going wrong. And on this particular day, the first tool check of the day, one of the shovels is missing. The officer in charge is enraged. 
He demands with every single Scottish prisoner gathered in front of him that the shovel be produced or else not a word. Complete silence. Nobody budges. At which point he gets out his gun and threatens to kill them on the spot one by one. And the officer could be seen in his eyes to be meaning exactly what he said. They knew he was serious. Total silence. Nobody stepped forward. Still, finally in the silence, one man stepped forward. In the book, the officer puts away his gun, picks up a shovel, and in front of all the other Scottish prisoners, beats him to death with the shovel, with with the blood spurting on a whole bunch of the Scottish prisoners in the front row. When it was over, the survivors picked up the bloody corpse and carried it with them to the second tool check, at which point later in the day they discovered to their surprise that no shovel was missing. When they did that, they went back and rechecked the first check and discovered they'd made a miscount and there'd never been a shovel missing. The word spread like wildfire through the camp. Everything changed. An innocent man had been willing to die to save the others. The men, for the first time, the Scottish prisoners began to treat each other like brothers. And when the victorious allies swept in, and you can see the pictures, they're horrible to look at. They're just these pathetic human skeletons. The allies lined them up in front of their captors and said, do you have anything to say? And here's what they said. Listen, no more hatred, no more killing. Now what we need is forgiveness. Because sacrificial, forgiving love has real transforming power. Marganita Lansky, one of the most well-known atheists in the 20th century in Britain, who was a very well-known novelist and personality, toward the end of her life, said something quite incredible as an atheist. It was kind of a moment of candor where it slipped out. She said this, she said, What I most envy about you Christians is your forgiveness. Listen to this. This is an atheist. I have nobody to forgive me. The the basis of her action is the forgiveness of Christ, the mercy of Christ. She is a mercied person. She saw his eyes. She heard that powerful statement, come unto me, and she came, and everything changed. So the basis is forgiveness. right? Now the foundation is faith. Look at your text and make sure not to miss this. Look at what he says in verse 50. And he said to the woman, your love has saved you, right? Because that's what the story is about. You need to get an alabaster jar and really show Jesus how much he means to you. No, no, no. She was somebody who had faith. She trusted in Jesus. It's about that look. It's about come unto me. She trusted in the mercy of God. And here's what you need to realize, brothers and sisters, that the cross of Christ works backward and forward in history. So you're saying, Kendall, what you're saying is she's saved through the cross even though it hasn't happened yet. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Because in Hebrews it says that Abraham was saved through the cross of Christ. You ever thought about that? It doesn't make any sense. What do you mean Abraham was saved through Christ? He couldn't even have known Christ historically. Christ wasn't alive yet. It's because the mercy of God works through the blood and the sacrifice of Christ, works forward and backward in history. So when she hears Jesus say, come unto me, and she trusts in his forgiveness, 
That is salvation through Christ, through the faith of her. She trusts him. It's about faith. It's about forgiveness. And then it's about one more thing. And it's probably the most powerful part of the story. It's about flow. She doesn't have any words, but man, does she have verbs. Man, does she have actions. One preacher who preached on this passage, James Smith, has seven different verbs for what she did. Just think about this for a second. She weeps, she washes, she stoops, she kisses, she anoints, she follows. Otherwise, she wouldn't have gotten there. She followed him to the house. Weeps, washes, stoops, kisses, anoints, follows. And most importantly, probably, she gives. She gives the alabaster jar of ointment. It's an incredible response of love from someone whose heart has been broken by the forgiveness of Christ. In my morning devotions, I had Psalm 66. Come and see what God has done. He is terrible in his deeds among men. He turned the sea into dry land. Men passed through the river on foot. And I found myself thinking about the sermon and thinking about the Exodus for a second. I said, you know, what does it mean? Actually, think about what the psalm is saying. He is terrible in his... As an Israelite, you're supposed to tell your children, we went through the sea. It was dry. And we passed through on foot. And we saw the waves. And we heard the Israelites behind us. And we saw the mountains. And we saw the land ahead. It has an incredible reverberating, entirely central power. We were saved from Egypt. And the whole of the Old Testament is, you shall remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. You have not been let down. You have been brought up. And that is the message of this text to us as Christians. One of the most dangerous ways you can preach this passage is for me to say to you, be like her, right? In which case, if you try to be like her on your own strength, you're not going to get anywhere. That's not the key to this passage. The key to this passage is this. What Jesus says about why she's doing what she's doing, it's profound theology. The most important motivation for a real disciple is deep heartfelt, passionate love for Christ. How do you get that? You go back to the cross and you stop, just like this psalm is asking us to stop at the Exodus. And it's saying to the psalmist, go back and imagine you were there walking through the waves and think about what you have heard and think about what you've seen and think about what it meant. Which means what? It means you've got to go to the cross and say, what does it mean that my sin put him there? What does it mean that he died for me? How much have I been forgiven? And then, if you think about that, you realize afresh that he loves you and you receive that, and that's the key that motivates. It's, it's when I survey the cross of Christ theology, right? On which the Prince of Glory died. Really, that's what the hymn writer is trying to say, right? My richest gain I count but loss. See from his hands, his feet, his sides. Sorrow and love come mingled down. He's, he's looking at the cross, and he's thinking about the fact that it's not simply Jesus Christ died. It's that Jesus Christ died for me. The difference between those two statements is night and day. We as Christians believe that Jesus Christ died for us. So I give you the woman with no lines 
and no name. We shall all look forward to meeting her in heaven one day and finding out her name. But in the meantime, as she turned Simon's life upside down, let's let her turn our lives upside down also. What does it mean that we've really been forgiven? What does it mean that an innocent man died for the others? No more hatred, only forgiveness. From that wellspring, deep love really flows. In Jesus' name. Amen.